don't give it like a the podcast platform of the finalist by Leopold Lambert. Today, the widow colony in Delhi, female bodies as vessels of remembrance, with Kamal Arora. Hello everyone, today my guest is uh, Kamal Arora, who is a PhD candidate in Anthropology at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver. Uh, and uh, she has a background in uh, gender and development and uh, she is researching uh, particularly about questions around uh, uh, Sikhism, gender and violence, uh, in particular in Delhi. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Uh, hello Kamal. Hello. Um, so maybe to start to engage this conversation, uh, would you mind um, uh, setting for us uh, the context of, of uh, the gender violence that uh, right now India in general and Delhi in particular uh, is uh, experiencing, especially following this uh, atrocious uh, rape of uh, two, December 2012, uh, if, if maybe you could bring us back to this uh, to this context uh, that'd be great to start this conversation mm -hmm. um, so when I first started my PhD field work it was December 2012 and I had gone to Delhi um, to research questions around the intersection between Sikh religious practice and violence um, in a particular colony of women uh, living in West Delhi known as the widow colony um, which I'll probably speak about later So what had happened in December 2012, um, a week after I had gotten there, was uh, the Delhi gang rape, which um, it sounds a little bit facetious, but the way I've been sort of thinking about it in my mind is that it, it, it was kind of Delhi's 9-11, so to speak, in terms of the way that it uh, completely changed conversations around gender in the city, um, and larger conversations as well about uh, gender relationships in India. So what had happened was... You know, the few days after the gang rape had happened, um, there were large-scale protests happening in the city, um, lots of conversations all over media, conversations on the street, and women already sort of had a heightened awareness of their own bodies as they sort of navigated through Delhi um, due to safety concerns. And this kind of, uh, the Delhi gang rape kind of just amplified this feeling so that women across the board who I had spoken to, friends, um, people in the field, were feeling uh, quite unsafe and had a real sense of uh, heightened bodily awareness um, as they navigated through their daily lives. So there were things like, you know, um, women who were working in retail, you know, refusing to go to work because they didn't have a way to get home safely at night. So what was happening was uh, shopkeepers were actually arming their employees with pepper spray as a way to sort of, you know, keep... Um, the sort of daily grind going and it also in some ways um, put a stop to certain forms of social life as well so women were feeling um, like they that they couldn't really go out at night and be social uh, because it was so difficult to to if you know a lot of women in Delhi do not drive um, so it was difficult to sort of find a way to get home that was reliable and safe and I, I, I experienced this quite a bit as well and so there was this feeling that you were kind of stuck um, after dark in your own home um, and your mobility was quite limited 
Um, so that, I think, is one of the ways in which the Delhi gang rape sort of not only changed conversations about safety in the city, but also changed women's relationships to their own bodies and their bodily relationships to their daily lives in Delhi. And the other thing um, which I noticed during my work was that the climate in Delhi had a, has a very strong uh, enmeshed relationship with the way that you know people move about that space. So, um, for example, when I would go to field work in the wintertime, um, the fog in Delhi is so strong that for the first few hours in the morning up until about 9 or 9.30, um, the visibility is so limited that if you stick your hand out in front of your body um, away from you, you can barely see your own hand. So to try and find public transportation um, or private transportation such as cabs or, um, you know, a lot of women get around by auto rickshaws, to try and find um, transportation for yourself during those times when visibility is so limited is, is almost next to impossible. So I would find that I would actually cut down uh, the hours of the day where it was possible to actually, you know, go out of your own home and do something. Um, and it was the same in the evening. The fog would sort of settle in once it got dark, um, making it very difficult to get home. And so the hours of the day would be cut short dramatically. And I think that that also proportionately um, affected women more so than it did, did men who had an, generally an easier time of uh, getting around the city. So there was a mix of smog and fog during the winter. Um, and then when you flip it, um, you know, to the other end of the year, when you're looking at the monsoon season or summertime, which is a little bit earlier than the monsoon season. So, you know, starting around May to July, um, the temperatures would soar to, you know, 48 degrees, um, making it very difficult for anybody really to be out on the street um, for any extended period of time. Um, so it was very difficult to sort of navigate, uh, during those times as well. And one of the things I'm looking at, um, you know, without orientalizing it too much is sort of looking at the effect that climate change has on temperament and affect as people move about a particular space in a particular climate. Um, and, uh, one of the other things, um, sort of to set the background of Delhi is, uh, you know, it's often been called thought of as like a, you know, a large historical city, which, uh, depending on how you classify it, it's 22 million people and, you know, a large proportion of that, um, are homeless. So there's a way in which the city is set up through the years. It's kind of got this, um, it's not very linear. So it, it doesn't have a sort of linear layout. Um, you know, there might be a 15th century monument next to, you know, across the street from a really shining sort of multiplex mega mall. Um, so there's that kind of disrupted temporality within the space. Um, and the way that the city is set out makes it very difficult, if you're not um, very familiar with it, to sort of navigate um, at night because it's not, you know, set out in a parallel or perpendicular way where there's a lot of street signs and things like that. And so often you're sort of relying on the know-how of others, um, to get around uh, at night. So I think all of these factors sort of um, paint a picture for you. Uh, you know, I haven't even gone into things like traffic and things like that, which mm -hmm. is quite bad in Delhi. Uh, but you can often be stuck in a traffic jam, um, you know, for an hour or two at a time easily um, and, you know, not be moving anywhere. Um, 
And there's, you know, there something else just came out. All these studies have been coming out saying that Delhi is now the most polluted city in the world. Um, and it's sort of eclipsed Beijing in the level of smog. Um, and so that is a study, or studies that, you know, based on studies that are have been coming out in the past year or so. So I think all of these things sort of um, set out the parameters of how it is to move as a body within mm -hmm. this particular space. Well, and um, precisely talking about their, the, the way, to, to use your terminology, the, the way bodies uh, navigate within the, within the city and how... Uh, bodies do not experience the city, depending. Uh, in that case, if they are, if they are a man or woman, something, something that's probably uh, worth mentioning as well is that their, their, uh, the, the transportation that you were you were pointing at is uh, almost exclusively uh, uh, facilitated by by men. The, you know, the rickshaws are driven by men, cabs are driven by men, buses are driven by men, and uh, and so you you always have to you always have to uh, be granted somehow, and uh, with the quotes, obviously, uh, be granted their, this uh, this transportation by uh, by uh, their, um, a, a body that is not uh, that you cannot identify it with, and that you cannot uh, um, uh, somehow fully relied on, isn't it? Yes, um, and uh, we had been talking about this earlier, but. Uh, you're right. It's it's very male administered. Um, all of the public transportation is the right word. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so there is, you know, after the gang rape started, they, you know, the Delhi police tried to put in a women's helpline, um, which became very, you know, quickly completely defunct. Um, you know, nobody would pick up the phone, and they spent all this money advertising it and all this. And they also had uh, now there's a cab company that um, has a fleet of women drivers, um, but. It's quite a small organization, and, and, you know, compared to these other cab companies uh, like Meru Cabs or something, um, it's very difficult to actually book a cab because they are so small. Um, and there have been uh, many instances of, uh, you know, violence, daily sort of street harassment happening on the streets. And there's also been a lot of talk after the gang rape um, because of the way that the media covered it. There's been a lot of talk overseas about how India has become a very unsafe place for women. Um, and I think there was a study done where um, the number of women traveling to India after the gang rape um, as foreigners had dropped by something like 30%. Um, but I feel like what I find what I find a little bit problematic about some of the coverage, um, and I'm, I'm thinking of, of a particular blog post that I had read on CNN, um, is that there? It's very dangerous to sort of blame that violence on and, and just say, okay, it's a cultural thing, you know, uh, Indian culture. You know, the men are patriarchal, and it's like a traditional system where the men are patriarchal, and you know, the women are beneath, and that sort of explains it in this rubric. And I think that's that's very dangerous because it doesn't um, it doesn't sort of link to sort of a larger picture of sort of transnational circulating patriarchies, I think. And also to, to blame a culture and say, you know, the men are violent. I think, you know, when you look at statistics, for example, the city of Delhi, and if you look at um, New York or something, you know, the, the rate of rapes that are um, reported are actually much higher in other cities. Um, but I think it's very dangerous to sort of tokenize and say, you know, Delhi is the most unsafe city for women. And it's, it's often gotten this 
moniker as being the rape capital of India. Um, but I think that the way that that's happening is because, you know, Delhi is a capital and there are um, more institutions put into place where women can report these kinds of things. So it's not that gendered violence, you know, doesn't happen elsewhere in the world. Of course it does. But I think um, the particular way that gender violence happens in New Delhi is very much more a bodily thing rather than, for example, I would say in Canada, you know, often it's more institutionalized. Um, but I would say that uh, the gender violence that happens in Delhi, um, it's very much a messy entanglement between bodies that can off often take on a public component. You know, things happen out on the street and out in the open. And so I think that's why it kind of um, pulls some more attention to it and comes across as, you know, being more so than elsewhere in the world. Mm -hmm. Well, and I suppose regardless of statistics and, and um, all the, the sort of... Uh, Uh, the reports and everything uh, I mean the, the enunciation of a critic from so much from the outside is always highly problematic and, uh, and American medias and Western medias in general are right. specialists in that in the in this matter um, so as you mentioned earlier I think we're gonna we're gonna try to look at uh, this uh, gender uh, questions and, and violence Uh, within uh, within a more specific uh, site, so to speak, mm -hmm. uh, um, that you mentioned earlier, this uh, what you, you called the, what seems to be called the, the widow colony, and maybe to put that back into context, this historical context, and to make the bridge with uh, another podcast that uh, uh, I've been doing earlier this year with a common friend of ours, uh, Arjun Gill. Um, uh, we need to re-talk about those, the 1984 uh, events that um, where the, the Indira Gandhi administration, uh, uh, <coughs> uh, I'm sorry, uh, ordered ordered their, their, the assassination of their of their main um, of the head of the Sikhism religion in uh, in Amritsar in, uh, in in Punjab, which was uh, subsequent. Sub Subsequently, uh, uh, followed by the assassination of Indira Gandhi by her own bodyguards who were who were sick, which then was followed by massive massacres uh, of uh, of uh, uh, Sikh all over India, um, uh, that produced, so to speak, their, uh, a very important uh, uh, amount of uh, widows, and and that's where. That's where your research uh, starts with uh, what happens to those women who were um, who were uh, who saw their their uh, husband and sometimes son dying uh, quite quite often in front of them. C could you could you maybe uh, 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 describe? Uh, The, the genesis maybe of that because I, I did it very uh, in a very superficial way here and obviously uh, there's there's uh, some complexity to it that are interesting interesting to to explore right so my um, field work that I've been conducting since 2010 is focusing on what's known as the widow colony um, what the actual name of it is Dilak Bihar which is in Tilaknagar, um, which is in the west, on the west side of Delhi, sort of along one of the metro lines. So um, 
What had happened in 1984 after um, these riots had happened, uh, after Indira Gandhi's assassination, and I use the term riots purposely, um, you know, I know that there's often a lot of talk and sort of uh, theorizing about riots as it being sort of a um, spontaneous thing that kind of just happens, and I, I don't think that that is particularly the case. Um, so I do use the term riot um, meaningfully. So what had happened after these riots were... Um, the widows who were sort of left behind after their husbands and male members of their families were killed um, were taken to relief camps by Sikh organizations and Sikh Gurdwaras, um, which is uh, Sikh temples of houses of worship. And so they had spent, you know, roughly between six to nine months in these areas. And um, they weren't, because of the way gender dynamics sort of play out in Sikh families and Punjabi families particularly, um, were not really able to go back to their natal homes with the chi with their children. And so they were kind of homeless and stateless, um, not stateless, but, uh, you know, didn't have a place to call their own. And so after living in these relief camps for quite a few months, um, the government had sort of had this housing that was empty um, in Dilaknagar and said, you know, we're going to offer you this as a form of compensation. Um, and so the women had sort of moved into these flats and... Uh, there's about 700 widows and their families living in this area um, in West Delhi. And so they've been living there for the last 30 years. And uh, the Nagar is actually seven blocks, and three of the blocks are um, given over to sort of the, the widows of the riots. And there's about nine, there's over 900 flats um, in the area. And, you know, some of them have moved on. Others have moved into the area. And um, what's interesting about the space is that these women come from a very uh, wide variety of caste and class backgrounds. Um, and it's almost like the, this, it was like a, the space was sort of an empty, you know, devoid of meaning um, in the beginning. But these women who had experienced violence at all other parts of the city had sort of come into this common space. So there was no actual, um, the only relationship that these women had to each other was really that they had all gone through the same violence. And so what does, one of the questions I'm exploring is, what does it mean to, you know, live with people who you might not have much in common with other than going through this um, collective trauma 30 years ago? Um, so what's happened over the years is that the blocks have sort of been divided along caste and class lines. Um, and so there's some degree of animosity between, um, you know, for example, Labana Sikh women who originally originate from Rajasthan and Punjabi Sikh women who originate from Punjab. Um, there's also a large Dalit community across the street from where the widows are. Um, and there is quite a tenuous relationship with that community as well. And in August um, of 2013, there was actually a very large riot that broke out um, which actually ended up, uh, you know, between uh, the young men of that community, there was a lot of fighting going on, and it actually instituted, uh, the police had to put in place a curfew um, for that evening and have a very heavy police presence out. Um, so a lot of the women were saying that the sort of violence that is happening in the community now um, very much at least uh, visually reminds them of sort of what they had gone through in 1984. Um, so... There's a very tenuous relationship between the women um, in terms of how they relate to one in, relate to one another because uh, the only thing that they really share um, in some ways is that they've all uh, gone through this collective trauma. Um, 
the other thing I've noticed in the neighborhood is that there is no public space for women to get together. Um, and they don't have the sort of uh, financial means to, you know, have women over for coffee or tea or, or spend time together. So the only space, there are no parks in the Widow Colony. There's just one large um, dirt ground in the back that they use for special events. So the only space that the women sort of have to sit together and be together other than their own homes, um, which are very small and cramped, is the Gurdwara that was built in that area. Um, and the Gurdwara, it's called Shahid Ganj Gurdwara, which basically means, um, you know, Shahid means martyr. So it's kind of like Temple of Martyrs or House of Martyrs. Um, that was built in the 90s for that particular community. And uh, although it has an all-male establishment, the women have sort of taken over the space um, in what I'm sort of terming as a, as a kind of counter-public. So they don't uh, really have any recourse to the public sphere and there's no space for them to sort of um, gather together. But they've kind of taken over this male-dominated Gurdwara space and made it their own. So they'll... Um, you know, long after the prayers are over, they'll sit there and talk about their daily lives. Um, you know, things like marriage, death, illness, um, schooling, job opportunities, and that sort of thing. Um, and they often sit there for an hour or two and, and you know, sort of get into these uh, arguments with the male establishment who are constantly trying to kick them out. Um, and that sort of uh, visual iconography, too, I think is, is something important to look at. Because this space has been produced in a certain way there's no um there's no sort of visual iconography that uh you know in the space itself that kind of engenders a memory of the 1984 violence so what has happened in the in the gurdwara is that they've actually created these material memories um to sort of link the women in that space to the violence that happened in 1984 elsewhere in the city so for example when you walk into the temple there is a um lamp that is lit for 24 hours uh, at the back of the Gurdwara as sort of a living memory um, of the men who were killed. And also there is a separate room in the Gurdwara that ha it's about 8 feet by 15 feet that houses photographs of the dead. So the photos have been highly stylized, um, sort of headshots of the men in sort of a very gaudy technicolor um, and, you know, softened around the edges. And there are sort of hundreds and hundreds of these photos just lining the walls of this room. Um, so I feel like in some ways the community, because that space was devoid of those particular spatial memories of the violence, they've recreated um, a spatial relationship to the violence by, you know, strategically using this iconography in particular ways. Mm -hmm. uh, let's go back a little bit and we will, we'll come back to this question of um, representation and uh, remembrance. Uh, but let's go back to something you said, and uh, I apologize because it's me putting my own obsessions on, on, on what you said, but mm -hmm. you talked about a meaningless space before they arrived, and uh, uh, as as you know now, uh, I don't believe such thing is actually possible. Right, right. And I think there's two, two, hints, two hints that uh, give us an idea that it might have been not so meaningless. The first one is a street you've been talking about, mm -hmm. a street as... Uh, has this um, has this ability to separate space, and in that case, that's very much what happened because it separated uh, uh, it separated the, the Punjabi and Rajasthani uh, 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 Sikh uh, community from from the untouchables uh, uh, 
on the other side so there is this and uh, I'm sure you'll tell you'll tell us I mean as, as we prepare this conversation I, I have an idea where you're gonna go with that so I'm, 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 I'm glad we're going that way uh, um, and, uh, and, uh, and another thing is this uh, this lack of uh, this lack of gathering space as well which uh, obviously uh, it was was already present in in this uh, in this uh, meaningless not so meaningless space right. that right. Uh, this population uh, mo moved in so could you tell us more maybe about this this notion of space yes yeah, so Sorry, I think I should rephrase. <laughs> when I meant meaningless, I meant meaningless to the women who were moving into yeah. that space at that time. And they were, you know, they kind of prior to that had no relationship mm -hmm. to this space. Um, but let me tell you a little bit more about the space. Mm -hmm. So when you walk in, you know, you kind of go in from the main metro line and there's a very bustling market. Um, and you have to pass that market in sort of in order to get to the Widow Colony. Um, so it's a it's an outdoor market similar to something like Lajputnagar or Karolbog, um, you know, for those who are familiar with the city. Um, and uh, you you get to sort of a turn in the road, and there's a very marked um, you know spatial change in the way that uh, the neighborhood is laid out. So suddenly, you know, you you get to the smaller road, and there's quite a lot of rubble everywhere. Um, so broken stones. Um, garbage sort of lining the corners that sort of thing and so they've you've got these small um, shops on the right hand side things like there's a there's a mattress seller um, a wedding card uh, published you know someone who prints wedding cards um, and there's a butcher shop I believe and then on the left hand side there is a um, there's a number of small factories making things like uh, cooking oil and, and things like that and most of them are actually quite defunct and then you get to um, you know there's a police post which uh, I've never actually really seen police hanging out outside. They're usually more um, indoors and then come out, I think, when something is going on. And then that's when the colony is um, starts. So the colony actually falls under, it's, it's a recognized slum. Um, so it's uh, under the authority of the Delhi Development uh, Authority, basically. So when I had gone and tried to do research on the slum, um, you know, the widow colony as slum, I had gone to the Delhi Development Authority and the property office and the tax office um, and kind of had gotten turned down at every corner. Um, and because the people in the community, um, they don't, can't afford to pay taxes, there's actually no property information that I could find, at least within the one year, year and a half that I was there, that actually lists, you know, who owns what flat. Um, and going to the Delhi Development Authority as well to try and get that information, you know, I was completely stonewalled and, and wasn't able to sort of get, um, get that information. Um, so the colony itself, it's actually buildings of four stories each. And originally, it, you know, the, each flat housed a very small front room, a back room and a tiny kitchen and a, and a small toilet. Um, and over the years, people have sort of been putting up their own walls and it's taken on this um, hodgepodge quality where they're kind of adding um, extra rooms and extra walls at the back um, of each flat. So also the, uh, the hallways of the colony are very narrow and the staircases, um, you know, compared to staircases, for example, in Vancouver where I live, uh, the stairs are actually much deeper 
um, and sh and smaller, if I can say that. So the length is smaller, but there's actually a, you know much deeper um, distance between one step and the next step. Steeper. Steeper. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Sorry, that's the word I'm looking for. Um, so a lot of the women who are elderly, the widows, have you know mobility problems, and if they're living on the fourth floor of a walk-up, it's very unlikely that they're, you know, some women um, who aren't able to walk as well just, you know, don't even bother coming out of their flats anymore. Um, so because everything is so narrow, like you're saying, there is no, um, there's no parks, there's no benches, there's no public space for women to get together. And there's not even room within the colony itself for women to sort of stand in a hallway and, and chat um, because the hallways are so narrow. And so what was very interesting to me was the way that the government was sort of um, using this space um, to sort of further their own agenda. Sorry, not only governments, but parties who were um, vying for election seats. So when the elections happened in the past year in Delhi, um, I won't say you know who it was, but there was a political party who had come to the colony with um, a lot of cement and a lot of workers. And they had said, you know, if you vote for us, we'll fix the stairs in your colony and we'll fix the walls and, and this and that. And so what had happened, they, what had happened was they had started um, fixing um, holes in the walls and cement and there was a lot of mixing going on, a lot of dust everywhere and uh, a lot of water running around workers. They had the scaffolding, the pipes up um, on the side for scaffolding and the minute the literally the you know after the elections were over in the next hour all of the workers just disappeared and left all of that material there so it was obviously clearly a ploy to sort of garner votes for themselves um and so they had you know used the space as sort of like a, a as a hinge to say okay we care about you we'd, we'd like your vote and we're going to come and fix this space for you but then it actually ended up being the opposite so they had sort of left, you know, wet cement lying around everywhere mm -hmm. and sacks of cement in the widow's actual homes mm -hmm. and, you know, um, sort of put in this cloud of dust and then it had completely disappeared. Mm -hmm. So there's a way in which um, I think that particular space is used um, to further political agendas. And, you know, this comes up not only in India, but in the diaspora mm -hmm. as well. Well, and what you know the result of the elections in December, uh, last December in Delhi, and you know which party you're talking about. But <laughs> right, uh, right. Uh, maybe if we, we, we ought to say that it is extremely common practice in India to uh, right before the elections happens. And and uh, I'm actually surprised that only one party came in. Like it, uh, it feels like most parties usually go from neighborhood to neighborhood with right. similar right. similar deals uh, uh, that. Uh, um, uh, yeah, that really reproduce itself uh, all over all over India. Uh, but let, let's go back to to the street as well, because mm -hmm. um, uh, you were mentioning this uh, this uh, person you you worked this young person you worked yes. with, which had a very uh, it, uh, what you told me about her was particularly symptomatic of of, of uh, if I may say there the powers and the street exercise in 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 a given community. Right. So I had an assistant um, that I had hired to help me with interviews and sort of introduce me to the colony. And uh, she was a young woman who was a resident of the colony as well. And uh, she's about 23 years old. And um, 
you know, is fairly well educated and uh, works for a nonprofit organization in, in New Delhi. And so when we were now when we were navigating the space of the colony, um, we had decided that day to sort of map out some of the various roads and businesses that were in the neighborhood. Um, so there's a long street that sort of divides the colony in half. And on one side, you've got um, the Punjabi Sikh block and sort of the Labana Sikh block um, of widow colony housing. And then across the street, you've got the Gurdwara. And behind that, there is a Dalit or untouchable um, colony, basically. Um, it's called, you know, the Harijan colony, which basically is another word for Dalit. So when we were mapping the space, when I asked her, you know, let's go across the street and map the other side of the neighborhood, she flat out refused and she had said, I've never actually been across the street to that neighborhood, um, which to me was very shopping, shocking because it was literally 500 meters away. And she had been living there for 23 years. Um, but because the caste divides were so great, she had actually ref she had never actually been, um, you know, to that side of that of the neighborhood. Um, and when I asked her why, she said, you know, using a very common phrase that people use, um, you know, backwards people live there, you know, so I can't go there. It's not safe. And her movements actually were highly, um, in some ways, policed as well. So she wouldn't actually take the metro and go to other parts of the city without her father um, supervising her. Um, so it was very interesting to me to see that uh, even though the the spatiality of the the way that the houses are put into that space are very close-knit, um, that those caste and class divides still exist within that particular space. Mm -hmm. um, so um, should we maybe go back to this idea of their... Uh, the sites of remembrance and how how uh, events that happened uh, 30 years ago this year uh, are able to still very much uh, drive um, the daily life of a community and how how this uh, spatialized into into those sites of remembrance and and how how all of this uh, uh, comes about like or, or almost or oriented always with this uh, with this uh, tragic event uh, of three decades ago. Right. So what I'm what I'm finding is that there are particular ways in which that remembrance, in some ways, is thrust upon these women at certain times of the year. So when the anniversary, if if we can use that term, um, when the anniversary of the riots comes up at the end of October and early November of every year, um, there are a number of events that happen across the city in remembrance, and the 30th anniversary is coming up, so there's, uh, you know, given our penchant for caring about zeros and decades, I think that this is, you know, going to be quite a, a, a significant year um, in terms of uh, memorialization. So there are a lot of commemorative events that happen. Um, and every year in the Gurdwara, there is a three-day uh, prayer known as an Akhandpat, um, which, you know, which takes place and uh, Sunday is sort of the last day and, and in some ways is the more significant day because more people um, come out on the last day. And so what was happening in the colony um, was that they were having these commemorative events and the women were being um, tokenized in a certain way by the male establishment and... Uh, like I was mentioning to you before, um, 
what happened, for example, one particular case was that the, the Gurdwara establishment was saying, oh, you know, there's going to be a lot of people coming up, um, you know, announcing it over a loudspeaker and a microphone. There's a lot of people coming in on Sunday. The media is, is going to be coming. Um, so, you know, we have to sort of be on our best behavior. And, you know, we have such and such, so many kilos of flour that need to be made into chapatis for the lunger, for sort of the free communal meal. So they had said to the women, you know, this is a time of remembrance and you're a widow and you're, you know, sort of a living embodiment of this loss. And so there was a way in which they were sort of forced to act in particular ways or, you know, so they would say things like, okay, we've got 80 kilos of flour. If each woman takes home a certain amount of flour, you know, she should be making chapatis in remembrance of her husband and coming back sort of with the food the next day. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a very particular gendered way in which women are sort of pitted into these roles as sort of the sole survivor of um, the 1984 violence, which if you compare it to, for example, um, you know, natal families of the men who had been killed, you know, there's not so much of a focus on other members of the family, but the widow um, becomes a very particular social construct. And I think that, you know, that's a more historical thing uh, dating back to the partition and before that. Mm-hmm. Um, but and is, is there... Um... Is this uh, reproduced uh, pat- patriarchy uh, effectuated by uh, basically their son and their son-in-law, or is that males who come from even the outside of the colony itself? Yes, um, I would say it's perpetuated in families as well, um, and also the media. So there's there's quite a large uh, amount of coverage that happens every year on this event, um, and also you know when the elections come in. Um, again, it's like I was mentioning, each party has its sort of own way of sort of tokenizing mm-hmm. these women and using them as sort of a political tool to gain um, political influence. So what I'm, what I'm thinking is that in the ruins of the colony, we, saw, we find a sort of um, relationship to spatio-temporalities of violence, but that relationship is sort of embodied by and through these women. So 1984 has become quite a large construct in sort of um, Indian political parlance and the history of Sikhism and the history of the Punjabi diaspora as well. But one wonders if 1984 would become such a big construct if the widow colony did not exist or if it existed in a different spatial formation. Mm -hmm. So I suppose that it means that the the bodies of the widows themselves becomes a sort of representation of remembrance as well. Very much so. Um, and there was actually, a, this has happened a quite a few times. Um, there's a very performative aspect to their grief as well. And, you know, okay, we say that all motion is performative in some aspect, but there's an overt performativity that happens mm-hmm. when these commemora- commemorations happen. So, for example, when the media comes, and I've seen this many times, um, the minute a cameraman comes with his camera from CNN or, you know, another news channel, and they'll... Um, turn the camera on immediately the women start having this very um performative emotional response so they'll start crying they'll be weeping into the camera um saying very sort of stock responses like you know my life is ruined they took my husband away from me but then the minute the camera is turned off um they they become completely you know normalized mm-hmm. in terms of you know they they completely stop crying and they're and they're fine um, on the outset. So it's very interesting to me to see how um, 
the relationship with that, you know, with the media and how sort of the 1984 construct has um, proliferated means that the women are very overtly performing a particular type of grief mm -hmm. for a particular audience, mm -hmm. which might not be the case in other instances. Yeah, and I suppose we should absolutely not read that as a sort of... Uh, as a sort of spectacular dramatization of the grief, but rather as a sort of uh, ritualized uh, performativity. Just yes, like exactly. Mm -hmm. yeah. All right, well, Kamal, thank you so much for taking the, this time to uh, uh, share with us this, uh, this uh, incredibly fascinating research. And uh, this concludes actually the, uh, the series of podcasts uh, done in the West Coast <laughs> <laughs> at the very, very last minute. <laughs> uh, so th thank you. Thank you so much for everything and, uh, and good luck for uh, the continuing of, of this research. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Thanks.